Good afternoon and evening, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, slightly delayed, uh, but uh, long, much anticipated last session of the Lost Road class. So, um, as you will remember, we um, got up through the Quintus Silmarillion, um, and I stopped short of the etymologies because I said, you really don't want to hear me talk about the etymologies. You want to hear somebody who knows what he's talking about talk about the etymologies. Uh, and uh, we are very fortunate to have with us Andrew H- Dr. Andrew Higgins, I should I should say, uh, co-editor with Dimitri Fimi of, uh, of A Secret Vice, the new edition uh, of Tolkien's wonderful uh, essay, as well as other supporting material uh, from A Secret Vice on Tolkien's language creation. Um, Andy knows uh, Tolkien's languages and has studied their history very carefully. His uh, PhD work, he looked a lot at the early stages, like way back in the Book of Lost Tales era um, of Tolkien's uh, language invention, and he's, uh, uh, he's done some really good work on the etymologies before. So thinking about the conversations that we have been having throughout the Lost Road class about where, um, you know, where sort of this is in Tolkien's mind and in the process of his imagination of the stories of the Silmarillion and, and, and everything. And he's going to go back and be looking at thinking about our discussion of the of the Lamas that we were reading before and what we can see from these etymologies that Tolkien was also now writing at this time. Um, what what we can learn from that about the state of his imaginative progress and about his his linguistic development there. So um, without further ado, I'm going to pass you guys off to Dr. Higgins. Thanks, Andy, so much again for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Corey. And uh, I'm going to start the way I started when I was teaching the language invention through Tolkien course uh, last year, and that is, can everyone see and hear me okay? Yes, looking <laughs> it's good. It's always the fear when you're doing it. Everyone yes. brilliant, excellent. Good. I, I got very used to doing that every week. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. I, I've got to say, um, oh, good, I'm getting lots of yeses. Excellent. Very good. Good, good, good. That's always reassuring when you're sitting in a room with looking at a camera, basically, that there are people out there. Excellent. Good. Well, I've got to say, I've been, I have been following along with this, like all the Mythgard Academy courses, um, I've been following along with this one, usually listening to it on my way down to my, um, my, my job in uh, Opera Company in Sussex on my headphones. And this has been one of the best ones I've heard. I think the, the, the level of discovery and exploration you guys have been doing on these texts are, are incredible. And I hope tonight what I can do is kind of build on probably what my favorite class so far in this, in this one has been, and that was Corey's treatment of the llamas, which I thought was really incredible at showing that kind of intertextual interconnectedness of myth and language in Tolkien's um, creative development by this time and the fact that you can't take one they go together I mean they are completely married together at this point and I think when we look at the etymologies which I realize you know is probably not the easiest thing to read if it's the first time you're encountering this and I hope tonight to shed a little more light on what, what, what it is and what Tolkien was attempted to do in it. And I know in many ways it starts to become just a list of base roots and then words that come out of it. But I want to show to you tonight that actually an exploration of it is very exciting both from a linguistic and a mythic point of view because as with many of the uh, Tolkien's other language documents, not only is there a lot of language buried in them, but there's a lot of myth as well, and I hope to show a bit of that tonight. Um, I put on this cover page, just so you can see, um, two key documents from this period that Tolkien was working on. So we're talking now about the late 1930s, as we've been reading in this course about the Quenta, the Marillion, and the Annals, etc. 
On the left, you have one of Tolkien's sketches for his Tree of Tongues. And you will have seen a version of this when you read the Lamas. There's actually several versions of it. And this really shows what I think what it, when one of Tolkien's real occupations were at this time, which was this idea of the expansion of the Elvish tongues, um, what he would later, later call in his letter to Milton Woolman a nexus of languages. Um, on the other side, I wanted to show you, this is actually a reproduction of one of the pages of the etymologies that actually appears in um, this publication, Vinyar Tangwar, which I'll talk a little bit more about. And you can see that as you can see with many of Tolkien's documents, uh, the etymologies was a real working document for Tolkien. This was something that I think, unlike the Lamas, which we'll talk about in a bit, wasn't meant to be necessarily published with the Silmarillion materials as the Lamas was, as, we, as Corey has explored. But this was the kind of the, the working document that lay behind all of that. And in a way, while the Lamas kind of laid out the linguistic situation that Tolkien wanted his, his, his secondary world to have, the, this is the nuts and bolts. This is how he actually took that idea and ran with it to actually create words, grammar, etc. So we're going to have a, a look at that. Um, one of the things I thought would be helpful is to talk a little bit about the ling what I call the linguistic road to the etymologies. Um, and that is kind of the roadmap that Tolkien followed. And I start on the 29th of November, 1931, uh, a date that's, that's very near and dear to me now because it is the date that when Dimitri Fimia and I were working on the new edition of A Secret Vice, which you can see, you know, just ha it happens to be right here behind me. Um, and there'll be some classes, some um, seminars coming up on that very soon. Uh, we discovered, um, up to the time we did our research, no one really knew when Tolkien gave that talk on his secret advice when it was published in 1983 and Monsters and the Critics. It didn't really have a date. And through our process of our research, we discovered that Tolkien did give the talk on the 29th of November, 1931, at the Samuel Johnson Society of Pembroke College, Oxford. And that's when he first gave the Secret Advice talk. And within that talk, Tolkien recited three poems in the Quenya language and one in the Noldoran language. And that was the first time, barring Edith and, and maybe a couple of his close friends, that Tolkien actually unveiled specimens of his Elvish languages to a, a, an audience. I mean, it was, it, was, it was in a large audience, but it was enough people where these things would have gotten noticed. And I think it was around that time that Tolkien also started thinking about how he could expand these languages. Up to about this time, we really just have two key languages that Tolkien is working with. One is Quenya, or the early version of Quenya, spelled Q-E-N-Y-A, which, as many of you know and will have read, was very much inspired by Tolkien's love of finished phonetics. And this goes all the way back, and I'll show you some examples of that in a minute. And the second strand was Noldoran, which had started as a very early language called Gnomish, or Goldgrin, which was spoken by the exiled Noldoli in the Book of Lost Tales, and then morphed into Noldoran in the 1920s when Tolkien started working on those great epic poems that, that we've explored in Mythgard Academy. Later this would become, through lots of different routes, the Sindarin that we now know is the second language of, of the Elves of Middle-earth. Um, and in that talk, um, Dimitri and I have, have basically boiled down from that talk four key elements that Tolkien expressed was important for him for the art of language invention. And I'm just going to move ahead to the second slide so you can see what those are. 
Um, they are the creation of word forms that sound aesthetically pleasing. So uh, Tolkien was very interested in the way languages sound. He believed that you know words have a certain sound symbolism or sound sense to them. That is an inherent meaning. That a word has an inherent meaning, even though if you don't know what the meaning is. There should be a fitness between the symbol and the sense of its meaning. And then I think the two that are key for what we're going to explore tonight. One is the construction of elaborate and complex grammars. So an invented language should not be, as for example Jonathan Swift did, just a phrase in an invented language that has no grammatical background to it or structure. You should be able to see where each word in that invent where each word in a sentence, let's say, of an invented language came from, what its grammar was, its syntax, its morphology. And then the other one, and I think is probably the most important one as we move forward, is the composition of a fictional historic background for an invented language. So Tolkien was not only interested in inventing languages, he was in, interested in inventing the process by which invented languages grow, are created, and then grow and develop through historical time. So those are four key elements. I would say those last two are very important for what we're going to talk about today. In 1937, and I think 1937-1938 seems to be the real nexus of when Tolkien is really thinking about expanding this. And of course, as we've all explored in these courses, this is also the time that Tolkien is working on the Quintus Silmarillion, the Annals, etc. So again, in parity with the myth, again, coeval and, and interlinked, he's also looking at the languages. And probably one of the earliest evidences we have of this is a, a series of tables, which he calls comparative tables, which he, in which he literally goes through and he starts to show how different vowels and consonants changed and morphed in the different Elvish languages he was starting to develop. And this is published in Parma Eldolimbar 19. For anyone out there who's interested in really exploring the nuts and bolts of Tolkien's language invention, and I know that's not for everyone, but if you would like to, there are two key Tolkien publications that you want to dig into. One is called Parma Eldolumbaron, the Book of the Elvish Tongues, and the other one is Vinyar Tengwar. And since about the 90s, these publications have been used to publish Tolkien's unpublished linguistic papers. When Tolkien died, he left about of 3,000 or so, a voluminous amount of material on his languages. And in 1991, Christopher Tolkien um, entrusted a group of Elvish philologists called the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship to publish his father's papers. And these have been coming out in these volumes fairly chronologically. And so in Parma Lombar 19, we get this first comparative table. In the same year, Again, in the same year, 1937, he also decides to rewrite his Quenya, his Quenya grammar, which is now called Tenguesta Quendorina, or the Quendian grammar. And again, one of the things he says in the introduction to this, which is printed in Parma Eldolombar in 18, is it's concerned with the primitive source from which he imagined his Elvish languages were descended. So he's thinking about this idea of where do these languages come from? What are the, the base roots, the stems that these different words would develop from? And of course, right around the same time, as you all have explored and has, and has Corey's done an amazing class on, the Lamas, he writes the three versions of the Lamas, which again was supposed to be part of the published Silmarillion because this is go time for Silmarillion publishing and he's trying to get everything in order. And of course, he writes this within the framework of the transmission, so we have the Pengalad and we have the Elfwina and all that, so it's linked into the framework that he's established. Sometime 
from the end of 1937 to 1938, he starts to work on the etymologies. And Christopher, in the introduction, which we're going to dig a little into, um, uh, talks about the dating of this. And as I said at the beginning, the etymologies is very, a, very much a working document that uses principles of historic or comparative philology, which of course Tolkien lived, breathed, and ate every day, to suggest proto-base roots from which elvish words were constructed to give them coherence and consistency. So it wasn't enough for Tolkien just to think, okay, I want to expand my Elvish languages, so I'm going to create all these different versions of the Elvish languages in kind of step with what I'm doing with the different races of the Elves that start to appear, like the Danians and Assyrians and all that. No, I've got to go back now and I've got to create base roots from which these words in these different Elvish languages will emerge, in a way. Why? Because Tolkien believed that language invention should have coherence and consistency. That is, that there should be a structure behind them. They shouldn't just be made up words. And that's what he had to do, and that's what the etymologies really is, is Tolkien working out in very minute philological detail what those base roots would start as and then what those different words will be. And we'll, we'll see many examples of them as we go along. Um, so just to talk a little bit about the comparative tables, it's a set of five charts laying out these correspondences among these different languages. And already at this point, we start to see the emergence of these different languages. So you have Quenya, you have Lindaran, Teleran, Old Noldoran, Noldoran, Ilkorin, Danian and East Danian, as we talked about with the, with the Danian elves, Taliskin, which is a language that um, was really be, would become a Manish language that was influenced by certain versions of the Elvish languages, and then West, North, and East Lembaran. Of course, that, those were the elves, that's the Lembi. Those were the ones that remained. Um, also, interestingly, if you want to dig into this, and they're, they're quite fascinating, Tolkien also starts to assign primary word phonetic parallels to these languages. So, Teleran becomes Latin, Noldoran becomes Welsh, and Taliska becomes Gothic. So, that's interesting that he's starting to make some comparisons between what these, were, these sounded like possibly to Elfwina when he heard them and primary word languages. In the Tenguesta Quendorinia, which again, 1937, we have, and this is what it looks like, this is the, this is the Parma that it comes out of. Um, there's a, this is quite a complex um, undertaking by Tolkien because he starts to literally lay out chapters on different philological details. So you have the Lambion Ontale, which are the descent of the tongues, where he starts to essentially narrate what he'll later do in the Lamas. Um, you have co sound combinations, and then probably the one that's most interesting for us is this thing called Sundo Carme, which are the structure of bases. In these essays, Tolkien actually goes about talking about how these proto-base roots came together um, from very simple phonemes, like the, the combination of a consonant and a vowel and a consonant. Most of the Eldarin proto-roots start out as three letters, usually a consonant, a vowel, and a consonant. Some are four, some are four, some are th but most of them are three. And those are the building blocks Tolkien is going to use to build his tree of Elvish languages. And then he talks about the combination of sounds, word-making, accentuation. Of course, he didn't finish these. These are, these are um, there's a, a handwritten one and a typed one, but they're not finished. But you can dig into that if you want to look at some more. And interestingly, when I was rereading Christopher's introduction, 
uh, to the etymologies. He says, my father wrote a great deal on the theory of pseudo-karma, or base structure, but like everything else, it was frequently elaborated and altered, and I do not attempt its presentation here. Well, if you're interested in where it is, it's right there. <laughs> and they published it all with lots of notes and everything. Um, any questions so far? Corey, do you want to just jump in with any questions? or? No, I think you're doing great. Should we just go through and then we'll... Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. So then we get to the etymologies. Uh, and again, late 1937, 1938. Um, and in them, as I said, Tolkien returns to this idea of base roots. So the, the etymologies, if you want to read all of the etymologies, you need to go to two places. One is the Lost Road, which you've all read, um, but also... In, this vo in volumes 45 and 46 of Vinyar Tengwar, um, the Tolkien linguist and the, the man upon whose all, all of us work, or his shoulders we all work as Tolkien linguists, Karl Hofstetter and Patrick Wynne, went through the manuscripts and actually published what they called the addenda to the etymologies. It starts there. And so literally they go through every one of the base roots that Christopher gave us, Christopher Tolkien gave us in these books, and they include all the other notes Tolkien made around each of those roots. So if you're doing research on any of those proto-based roots, if you want to get a complete picture, and I'll show you some examples as we go forward, um, you want to look both at what Christopher Tolkien published and then look at the addenda in, uh, in here. And there's quite revealing things which, I'll, which I will show you. There's a lot of work still to be done on combining what we've got in the Lost Tales with what Carl and Patrick have given us. Um, if anyone would like a project, that's, that, that would be an interesting one. Um, so looking at Christopher's in, Christopher Tolkien's introduction, I think in terms of dating, uh, he pretty much says here, it seems clear to me that despite the very various appearance, the etymologies were not spread over a long period, but were contemporary with the Quintus Silmarillion and that some of the additions and corrections can be securely dated to the end of 1937 and the beginning of 1938, the time of the abandonment of the Quintus Silmarillion and the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. So, we, so actually, even though it is a lot of papers and they're all written on and written over in Tolkien's usual style of rewriting and niggling and all that, it was actually compiled in a very short amount of time. It's also interesting that Christopher says, if there is any evidence of him still working on it during the Lord of the Rings period, it's pretty much only at the beginning of his composition of the Lord of the Rings, because we do have some evidence of some names from the earlier parts of what was originally the Return of the Shadow, uh, the Fellowship of the Rings. So we do have things like Baradu uh, um, the Brandywine, Baraduin, and things like that, but none of the later stuff. So it seems that... Tolkien, you know, probably kept this in a desk drawer somewhere, and when he wanted to work out a name or something, he would take it out and, and do some more work on it. But we don't have that for the latter part of The Lord of the Rings. There's another document, which I'll show you at the end of this, that Tolkien did start working on during The Lord of the Rings, which has a similarity to the etymologies. So, in terms of looking at why does he include this, because in a way, if we're trying to get a picture of what that Silmarillion was supposed to look like, when um, uh, Tolkien wanted to publish that right up to the time of Lord of the Rings, this clearly was not originally intended for all we know to be part of that. But Christopher includes it, and I think the reason Christopher Tolkien includes that 
when I say Christopher, I really mean Christopher Tolkien. I just sometimes just lapse into Christopher. I'm not meaning him any disrespect. Um, is my object in giving the etymologies in this book is rather as an indication of the development, and I think this is the key word, and mode of development of the vocabularies of the Elvish languages at this period, then as a first step in the elucidation of the linguistic history, and also because they form an instructive companion to the narrative works of the time. So I think the two key things there is the mode of development. He wants to show us how Tolkien actually developed these words from proto-base roots, um, instead of just giving us the lamas, which kind of describe the linguistic situation. Here he's giving us the nuts and bolts. And also because they form an instructive companion to the narrative works of the time is also interesting, and, I, and I'll show you some examples of that as well, because I think, again, there's myth buried in these etymologies. Um, and then he starts to talk about... Now, the thing to remember is Tolkien did in the early phases of his language invention, going all the way back to the Book of Lost Tales period, he did work on what we, we would consider to be pretty much a standard dictionary of a language, and that was the Gnomish language, or the Goldegrin language. And in about 1917-18, he compiled a very tightly compressed notebook of words in the Gnomish language. It's actually one of the most complete dictionaries we have of Tolkien's. I mean, you can go through and there's about 300 words or so, and you can form some sentences. But that's really the only time. He does some word lists and things like that in the 20s and 30s, but he never comes back to doing this idea of a standard dictionary. And what, he, and what Christopher Tolkien says here is, the nearest he ever came to a sustained account of Elvish vocabulary is not in the form of nor intended to serve as a dictionary in the ordinary sense, but is an etymological dictionary of word relationships, an alphabetically arranged list of primary stems or bases with their derivatives, thus following directly informed from the original Quenya lexicon, which I've described in blah, blah, blah. It is this work that is given here. So CRISPR is setting up for the reader what this is going to be. This is not a list, this is not a list of elvish words with meanings. These are proto-roots. And of course, one of the um, uh, primary sources that Tolkien would have encountered very early on, uh, in about, I mean, he says 1904, is Chambers' Etymological Dictionary. And this was one of the uh, main sources of interest uh, in philology. Um, it was one of the earliest versions of this idea of an etymological dictionary. And this is uh, a picture of the copy that Tolkien actually owned. Um, and in 1973, literally the last year of his life, Tolkien wrote a note in this, and he said, quote, this book was the beginning of my interest in Germanic philology and philology in general, about 1904. Unfortunately, the introduction giving me my first glimpse of Lautverschiebing, that is consonant shift, that's sound shifts, etc., has become so well worn that it has become lost. So this is a book that Tolkien had throughout his life. And if you go through this book, you will see that, again, it starts with the idea of base roots from which words are developed. So this is the, this is the, the mindset Tolkien had when he was starting to develop this idea of the etymologies. And Christopher Tolkien mentions the Quenya lexicon. And just to give a quick review here, 
the earliest version of the Quenya language we have are really two key documents. One is called the Quenya Lexicon, and the other one is called the Quenya Phonology. And Tolkien would have started working on this before um, his time in the war, somewhere around spring of 1915. We start to have the earliest evidence of Elvish being used in the mythology, certainly by the poem The Shores of Fairy in July 1915, when we have the names of Alinor and Eldamar, etc. Um, that clearly were formed from this Quenya lexicon. And in the Quenya lexicon, Tolkien again uses base roots. So he starts with a base root, and then from that he forms words. And here's, a, and, and here's an example of that, before we go to that, just so you can see. So he, for example, he creates a base root Moro, M-O-R-O, and from that he, what I like to call linguistically riffs, on a series of words, all that have some some um, semblance with that idea of moro, meaning dark. So you have mori, night, morinda, of the night, nightly, moriva, nocturnal, morion, which is using the genitive plural, son of the dark, morwin, a name you should all be familiar with, meaning daughter of the dark, and then it even gets more creative. You got Morilanta, meaning nightfall, combining it with lante, meaning fall. Morwinian, meaning Arcturus, the, the planet. Moru, heal, hide, conceal, and Morwa, unclear secret. So, in this case, in the earliest version of the of the Elvish languages, Tolkien is not so much concerned with creating a nexus of different Elvish languages. He's focused on just the Quenya language here. But to create that idea of coherence and consistency, and also a sense of sound symbolism with the, the more, thinking of words that sound dark that begin with more, it's this idea that every one of these words formed from that base root will have a sense of coherence and consistency. Even if you're not quite sure what it is, it'll sound the way, it'll sound something about darkness, so morilanta, etc. So in this early case, Tolkien is using base roots to invent one language. Um, and why base roots? I think one of the things Tolkien was attempting to do here, as someone who, of course, was very interested in philology and especially comparative and historical philology, was to, re to mythically imagine or recreate this great thing that happened in the 19th century with historical and comparative philology, which is the search for the Proto-Indo-European source language, which was a which was a construct. You know, we. People thought we could go back by comparing different languages and find the root word, what would later be called the asterisk word, because it never really existed. But if you used the right kind of rules and you looked back, you could posit that this word must have come from this asterisk word. And this was the, the movement to try to find this Proto-Indo-European language that really grew up when people started comparing languages. And you have this, you know, this idea that um, William James talks about of the... Um, uh, the Sanskrit being the, the kind of the base language and romantic thing. Um, so there was that idea of the base root. So in a way, what Tolkien was trying to do was reverse engineer that idea and actually start by creating the base roots from which the words would develop. So you could then go back and trace that word back to its base root. So Tolkien was, in a sense, recreating the search for Proto-Indo-European by by reverse engineering it so that his languages would have that proto-feeling proto to it. Um, there's also this idea that um, a lot of the 
um, languages that use base roots are very much a glute in the languages. That is, that they start with the base root and then they add prefixes and suffixes. So think of a language like Finnish, for example, which Tolkien was, of course, very inspired by. You know, you have these massively long words because you start with the base root and then you add prefixes and you add suffixes and you add infixes in some cases. Um, and one of the 19th century philologists that, of course, Tolkien read and took a bit umbrage with uh, in, in another uh, respect, I'll, I'll refer to you on fairy stories for that, was Max Muller. And Max Muller believed that the agglutinative language um, was the earliest stage of language invention. And then it moved on to the other stages when you have um, more cases and then you have uh, prepositions and things like that. So if Tolkien wanted Quenya to be this language that existed in some primeval mythical past, remember we're thinking about the early ideas of the mythology for England and everything, then the agglutinative model would have been one that that would have represented. Um, and I'll just give you this quote from an early work that Tolkien definitely would have encountered. This was the, the text that inspired Tolkien, and I actually have the edition that Tolkien would have had right here um, that I found on eight books, but this is the actual edition Tolkien would have had. And that's C.N.E. Eliot's Finnish Grammar, which Tolkien encountered when he was at Exeter College as an undergraduate. And this is when the, the, the quote we all know about, you know, finding this language that intoxicated him. This was the book that intoxicated him. Um, and it says, all Finnish Acadians is concerned with the additions of suffix to roots. In the present state of the language, these roots are mostly dissyllabic, though there are also plenty of monosyllables. There is reason to believe, however, that these dissyllabic groups are mostly the result of the combination of a monosyllabic with very primitive suffixes. And it is probable that the original roots were of the form consonant, the vowel a consonant. And I'll just ask you to remember that when we start looking at some of the base roots in the etymologies, because you'll see some examples of that. So I think this quote from Christopher Tolkien in the introduction really kind of sums it up in terms of what Tolkien's actual process was for the creation of a word. He did not, after all, invent new words and names arbitrarily. In principle, he devised them from within the historical structure, proceeding from the bases or primitive stems, adding suffix and prefix, or forming compounds, deciding, or as he would have said, finding out, when the word came into the language, following through the regular change of form that it would have undergone, and observing the possibilities of formal or semantic influence from other words in the course of history. Such a word that such a word such a word would then exist for him and he would know it. I, I love that phrase. It, it reminds me of you know uh, trees I wanted and, and trees there were. You know that idea that such a word would then exist for him. Only then would a word exist for him and he would know it. As the whole system evolved and expanded, the possibilities for word and name became greater and greater. And by the time we get to the etymology, you can see that Tolkien can construct quite a uh, quite a number of words and names because he's created these base roots. So in the etymologies, as you were probably reading through them, you probably noticed that there were all these little abbreviations and Christopher Tolkien gives a nice kind of um, chart so you can figure out what those different abbreviations were. Um, but you have within all of them basically, that not, not in every passage, but in all the etymologies, the languages that are mentioned are Quenya, Noldoran, Danian, 
Dorth Thorthrin, Eldarin, Exilic Noldoran, so that's the Noldoran that was spoken when they went back to Middle Earth, Ilkorin, Lindarin, Old Noldoran, Osirandeb, Primitive Quendian, and Teleran. So those are the key languages that Tolkien's playing around with, and as you saw in the Lamas, he wants to start expanding in terms of not only the cultures and the histories, but also the words that these people spoke. Um, and you see that through. Now, I just give here a page from the new edition of uh, Secret Vice because within the, the manuscript for the Secret Vice there were some interesting pages that were related to the talk and one of them is this fragment that Tolkien wrote on the back of another page where he starts to chart out some of the key shifts in, in consonants that would appear in these different languages. So it's hard to see but if anyone has a copy of the Secret Vice, this is um, folio 24-verso, if you remember the page, but you can see Quenya, PTK, Teleron, PTK, Nodoran, BTC, so you can see how consonants are starting to shift. And if you go through the etymologies, you can actually see this in action. We'll see that in a minute. So let's look at an entry in the etymologies. And the first one I picked um, is an interesting one because actually the, the actual proto-root, the Eldarin root, which he always starts with. So he always starts with the, the, the reconstructed root from which these words come. So in a way, this is the asterisk. This is, the, this is what you'd have to trace all the way back, all these words back to, to get to this proto-root. But this one's interesting because Tolkien, as we all know, was an inveterate reuser of his material, think of Gondolin, etc. Um, and he also did that with some words, and there's one word especially that first appears in the Secret Vice talk um, and in the, in the little poem Tolkien gives of the Secret Vice um, in the language that Tolkien invented called Nafrin. Nafrin was probably the first real invented language that Tolkien invented on his own and starts to show his kind of linguistic qualities, what he thought was interesting aesthetically, and I refer you to Secret Vice, page 20, where you'll, you'll see that. But he loved this, this little phone, this little word vru, which means ever and always. Um, and he kind of played around with that throughout his development of his languages, and it becomes, it becomes part of this entry. Um, and this is the entry bor, B-O-R, which means endure. And so, okay, so Tolkien gives you, okay, in, in a true etymological dictionary uh, sense, bor equals endure, and in Quenya you get voro, which means ever continually. So again, that has something to do with endure and ever continually. There's the prefix vor, voro, as in, and then he gives you an example of a word, vorogandeli, mean harping on one tune. So you're continually harping, harping on that same tune, continually, repetition. And then from that, we get this vorima, which means continual or repeated. So again, just like we saw with the Quenya lexicon very early on, he's linguistically riffing on this idea. I, think of a, I always think of Tolkien almost like as a jazz musician, although I think he was probably a lot more, um, it wasn't so, um, well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it might have been a bit, you know, like, like you're improvising and you're just writing and you're saying, okay, vor, voro, vorimi, etc. Um, but he had a system he was working on, continual repeated. And then we get the shift. We get the shift of a V to a B. And we get, first of all, what Tolkien says is, I'm not going to give you the real word. I'm going to give you what I think is the, re the asterisk word from when the shift happened, and that's boron. 
which in Old Noldoron, no, Old Noldoron becomes Boron, and there's the plural, Borani. Interestingly, we don't see yet this idea that Tolkien played around with the mutation of plurals. It's just an ending with an I, so you don't have, for example, as we have in Sindarin, Ored meaning mountain, and Arid meaning mountains. We don't have that yet. But Boron means steadfast, trusty man, faithful vassal. So now he's developing this idea of what started out as enduring and continually, now it's, now it's become steadfast, trusty man, faithful vassal. And then you have this other version of Noldoran, Boar, which now has a plural beer, for older Baron. So he's creating this linguistic path through all this development in the Noldoran name, of Noldoran languages, of what started out as Boar. And in Noldoran, you get names which mean faithful men. Boar, Boranthpos, Borlas, and guess what? Look who shows up. Boromir. Um, again, Boromir is an old Noldoran name of ancient origin, also born by gnomes. Old Norse Boromiro and Boromiro. Now, interestingly, um, later on, uh, we learn that actually Boromir means steadfast jewel, because the mere part is, is a jewel. Um, and I think it's quite ironic that, you know, the name of, uh, of Boromir, knowing what's going to happen in the, in the Lord of the Rings, um, depending on how you look at it, uh, Boromir's name actually means steadfast, trusty man. There we go. Um, so we start, we see how Tolkien, again, is playing with this idea of starting with a base root and creating all these different versions. But the key thing is they all relate to each other. They are all coherent and they're all consistent. If you used any one of these in any of the texts, you would be able to trace it back to its proto-root. And for Tolkien, that's where it exists. Like he said, that is when he recognized it as a word. Another example, again, and this is kind of a... Uh, we saw earlier with the Quenya lexicon that he created all these words in Quenya for more. Now he's taking the same base root again, so more again, so he goes back to that. And he posits that actually it's, there was an asterisk word way, way back, Mori. So that's why it's got the asterisk, which meant black. And then from that, we get Quenya More, which means black. Mordo, shadow, obscurity, stain. Now what I've done here in these brackets is I've actually gone through um, the addenda to the etymologies and put in words that didn't appear in Christopher Tolkien's original publishing that he also played with. So not only was it a stain, but it was a smear, and it also meant dimness. For some reason, that, was, that didn't get in. Mori um, means blackness, dark night. Morna, gloomy, somber. And then we get this lovely word, Mora Linde, which means nightingale. Interesting. I'm thinking of who, of course, is referred to as a nightingale. And then we get an interesting um, comparison now. So it's Mora Linde, but in Ilkorin, which again, you know, we're talking more about the languages now in Beleriand, it's Morulind. And in the notes, Tolkien also played around with the idea of Morilind and Mirilind. So we have two types of forms. And then in Noldoran, it becomes Maur, and it means gloom, and Moru, and Morn, black, etc. And then, of course, he starts playing around with some of the names, Morgoth, Black Foe, Melko, Morinde, Moriquendi, etc. So we again see Tolkien creating that idea of, okay, the words for darkness and blackness, this is the base root where they come from, and these are the different ways they are formed.
the other thing that I found interesting when going through the etymology is I recently did, I did a paper um, for the um, the UK Tolkien Society in Leeds in July, and I looked at the etymological kind of words for life and death um, in, for elves and men, and I, I was looking to see from a philological and, and linguistic point of view the ideas around elvish and, and mortal death and how those are reflected in the, in the uh, things that hopefully I'll do something with that at some point. But um, one of the things that I was struck by was the way Tolkien reused but also slightly changed some of the base roots that started in the Quenya lexicon in the etymologies, and a good example of this is machamak. So in the Quenya lexicon, we have this this root form maka, which means to slay, and it's from the first word for sword or broadsword is makal or matal, slay slaughter. And of course, we have that very early, slightly interesting, well, very interesting to me, um, uh, Valar, who kind of disappears, Makar, who's a god of the a god of the battle. Along with Miase, his charming sister, um, and again, that all comes from that idea of slay because he's a god of battle, and we have Makalar swordsman. So you can find all of those in the Quenya lexicon, and then in the Gnomish lexicon, again, we have Makfa. So he slightly changes it because we're, we're dealing with a different phonetic um, sound system here, more kind of influenced by Welsh. Um, so we have Makfa, slay, kill. Magu, a great sword, Maka, sword of battle, and the names like Magar and Maka, etc. And then when we get to the etymologies, though, he decides that actually now Mak no longer means slay, it means actually what you slay with, and that is a sword. So he says Mak equals sword, or as a verb stem, fight with a sword, cleave, etc. And then it gives several examples. So he, he's reusing, but he's also rethinking as well. And it's from that that we get some words that should be very um, familiar to you, like Magal and Makta and Mata, etc. Um, all kind of meaning fight and battle. So again, he's reusing, but he's refocusing. And now they're no longer parts of specific words. They're proto-roots from which words come. Another example is a base root that starts out as koyo, which means to have life. And so words like koi, koire, etc., um, and it's from these these words with another um, root that we get koivineni, koivineni. Sorry, my uh, I remember to pronounce it. Koivineni, meaning the waters of awakening, which of course is where the elves awaken. Um, um, and then in the etymologies, this becomes kui, koi, but it still means come to life, awaken. And of course, it's where we get kuivienen from, which is the name in the later on where the elves await. So again, he's keeping things, but he's slightly, as with everything with Tolkien, as we've seen in all the different drafts of what he's been working on, he's, he keeps things, but he goes back and he works on it, he changes it, he refocuses it, etc. Um, and they become these idea of proto-roots. Um, and then I talked a little bit about the idea of there being myth in those entries, and I think a really good example, and one if you just want to have a read of, again, I mean, I know it looks, for a lot of people, it looks like a phone book, and you're like, oh, what, what do I focus on? Focus on this one. Ta, ta, high, lofty, noble. So that's the proto-root. And from that, we get tara, meaning lofty, and several words in Quenya, Old Nodoran, etc. Tower, tower, and then in Nodoran, poetic only, or an ancient tower. And from this, we, it kind of blends with another base root to give us tara, which means king. And Tolkien even makes a, com a, 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 a parallel name in Spanish, so he actually brings in a word in Spanish. Remember, Tolkien knew Spanish because early on 
his guardian father, Francis Morgan, was half Spanish, half Welsh, so he would have been uh, around Spanish. But what I thought was interesting was here, Tarot King only used of the legitimate kings of the whole tribes, as Ingwe of the Lindar, Finwe of the Noldor, and later Fingolfin and Fingon of the Exiled Gnomes. The word used of a lord or king of a specified region was Aran, Ar, Quenyaharan, Sihar. Thus, Fingolfin Tau Egladirhir means king of the exiles, but Fingolfin Aran Hithlam means king of Hithlam. So he's so Tolkien is creating in this little word entry two different ways to designate a king. If they're legitimate kings, apparently they get this thing. But if they're kings of specific regions, they get this thing. So he's making that distinction. So again, if you read if you read through these different entries, you'll not only see lots of philological information, you'll also see information that's appearing in his mythology. Um, and then again here, I know I know um, Tiniquetul, uh, which I have to start pronouncing as Tanaquetul. Tiniquetul has become a very. I was just listening to the um, the last class, and there's this kind of the rise of, of, of Tiniquetul is an important thing. Well, in the etymologies, we also have this idea where again, based on the stem, um, he mentions Tiniquetul where and, and looks at different substances, especially in this idea of Manway's Hall, etc. So again, he's playing around with that idea in the etymologies. Now, in Tolkien linguistic studies, I've got to say the etymologies has been one of the most um, looked at um, documents because there is so it's so rich not only in word formation but also in grammar. For example, you can go through and actually see how verbs are formed and things like that. And for anyone out there who's interested in really digging into this, like I am, um, I want to suggest you three key sources, um, and there is. Um, uh, th there's a wonderful uh, website called the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship. It's run by the guys who actually are editing Tolkien's paper, like Karl Hashtetter. And on that you'll find something called Tenguiste. Uh, this is a board that's got some amazing, very scholarly papers on Tolkien's languages. And in that there's been three papers done that really dig into the etymologies. And if you're interested in intensifying prefixes, there's a paper there. If you want to look at the past tense of Noldoran verbs, Carl's done an amazing paper where he actually isolates all the different versions of the past tense, usually formed with an infix, infix in the etymologies. And then there's another one on compound words in the Noldoran. So these are three key sources where you can have a look that, of people who really dig into the etymologies um, and look at it from a very linguistic point of view. But that's not the only way you can look at this. You can also look at it from a very mythic point of view and see what Tolkien is telling us within the etymologies about the mythology of the time, as Christopher Tolkien said. And I mentioned that this wasn't the only time that Tolkien did Eldarn, Roots, and Stems. And indeed, after Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, in about the 1950, late 1950s, early 60s, Tolkien did plan, and we have, uh, there's a letter to H. Cotton Minchin where he talks about this, he did plan to write a book of, on Elvish philology, um, a complete book on it, and he started doing lots of notes for it, um, including going through every word in the Lord of the Rings, every um, foreign word, in, in other words, words in his art languages in the Lord of the Rings, and writing a, uh, a very um, detailed uh, guide to each of those words. And also at the end of that document, he started going back again at this idea of Eldarin roots and stems 
and revisiting it, as Tolkien did. And uh, these have all been published with uh, great edit editorials of Imparmal Elder Lombaran 17, words, phrases, and passages in The Lord of the Rings. And anyone who's interested in understanding the state of the Elvish languages after Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, this is the book for you. Uh, it has lots and lots of information. And again, lots of shifting information. So, as I always say with Tolkien's languages, it's very tricky to try to ice, try to bring it all together in one thing and say these are Tolkien's languages. Tolkien developed the language in different conceptual phases, and they were all subject to his personal aesthetic and shifting thoughts. Um, but what you can get out of these is what Tolkien was thinking about when he was writing some, constructing some of these names and passages in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so let the exploration of the etymologies continue. I want to hear what you guys have to say. I would say it's an incredibly rich source of Tolkien's interlinked language and myth-making, and there are a lot more treasures waiting to be discovered out there. Um, so thanks very much. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, a bunch of people have been making some observations and, and asking questions and things. Great. Nancy Fosberg was just uh, pointing out uh, sort of a mythic thing that she noticed while she was looking at the etymologies, that uh, uh, the way that the direction north is the same as 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 right and south is left right so that you can see yeah. the 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 fundamental westward orientation of uh of the uh of of the elvish concept of direction right which you know d does sort of show the mythic place of those cardinal points uh of direction in their minds which is a really neat observation and that's interesting because that actually persists into the 40s because if you look at uh, the, the latest version of Parma Elder Lombaron, which is number 22, where we get verb, we actually get verb forms. Hey, we get verb, verb syntax, hooray. Um, <laughs> he talks more about that. I always, I always quote that when I think of verb. Um, he talks more about that, and, and interestingly, that idea um, around the west is Valinor, and then north is, uh, is associated with Morgoth, so that's the evil, the evil word, basically, and he does right. some work on that. So, yeah, no, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joe Hoffman was asking: Was <clears throat> this was a, a little while earlier on? Was uh, was Tolkien leaving notes to us in his reference books? Like there were some of the things that you were suggesting before that made made it sound as was was he annotating things just just for himself? I think I think this is very much a working document for him, and I, and I think if you look at the addenda and things like that, you see there's lots of crossing outs, there's lots of changings, and it really shows Tolkien as the Nicolor that he was. You know, he was, and I'm and I'm sure for him, you know, if he wanted to invent a name, you know, again because this is all as as he said, this was all his game. You know, if he wanted to change something in a name, he'd have to go back and change the base root. So there's lots of going back, changing, and stuff like that. So again, I I wonder what Tolkien would have thought of if he knew we'd seen this information. Um, but of course, what you get is is his thought process, basically, and you and you can see how things changed in um, the process he did. But again, if he had if he had to change one thing, of course, that would then have to change another thing. And he, as usual with Tolkien, he would then become very focused on that and forget about what he was doing first. So, um, but I think it was I think it was mainly a working document for him. Right. right. That's my thought, anyway. I mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> following up from that, it was a question that I had, especially thinking about all the stuff that we were looking at, the way that he approached all this material in, um, um, in the uh, um, Lost Road 
stuff, you know, in this whole era. Uh, here, hang on a second, I might as well. There you go. Turn on my webcam here. Um, that was there any? F- did he ever? I mean, I know he wasn't intending these for publication, right? So there was no, you know, he wasn't like attaching a frame to this because he wasn't planning to send these out or anything. Are there any hints or indications? Like I'm thinking of the Hlamas where he has that one passage where he alludes to elvish philologists, right? To those, el- you know, and and that, uh, that 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 you know there were those elves who were extremely skilled in you know tracing the history of tongues, um, and that they you know like Rumil and others who who sort of assembled all the matter that mm-hmm. got made into the into the Lamas, does he ever in, in any of the purely linguistic work, stuff like the etymologies that was that were working documents, is there any evidence of any kind of a conceptual frame within his history for like which elves wrote this and where did this come from? Anything like that? There there in the some of the early Book of Lost Tales material actually, um, there's one word the word list to the fall of Gondolin. <clears throat> this is very early. Um, he does have this little almost argument between Rumiel and I can't remember who the second one is, where they're basically debating about one of the names. I think it's Bronweg or something like that. And you have this little dialogue. Um, it's one of the Parmas where it really becomes part of the frame. You know, right. where, where it says, well, this is what Rumiel said, and this is what I heard, and this is what the other one said, and things like that. With the, et- with the etymologies, you don't see any of that. I don't see any example of someone saying, yes, but this is what, you know, this is what I heard it was. It's, that's why I, I, I'm inclined to think that this wasn't supposed to be linked in any way to anything Tolkien was going to publish. I think this was, again, his, the background, basically, the, right. the nuts and bolts from which words would come and stuff like that. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Okay. Yeah, it's just interesting to see if uh, I mean, yeah, because again, what I would what I would wonder about not was again whether there's evidence that he meant to publish this as is or something like that, but like whether his wine his mind wandered in that direction, you know, whether you know how how that worked. But it seems then if there isn't any of that stuff in the etymologies, that he really was thinking of these as essentially private papers that he would use as kind of like to, to sketch things out so that he could develop the link. You know, so as you said, with the Lord of the Rings, when he comes up with the names, right. Or when he needs to come up with a name, he has all this material to farm. Right. Uh, and to, yeah. and to develop. I mean, yeah. You have that little passage about the Kings though, which is interesting because who is he running that for? Is he running that for himself? Right. Right. Why well, that note about the, you know, the different words for the Kings, Taro versus Aron, you know, and Aron, because comes later into the Lord of the Rings. Is that a note for himself? Right. Or, again, is that, as we've seen, like, with the Annals and the Chronicles, he starts off trying to be very, okay, I'm going to write this from a very kind of, you know, chronicle, chronicle, and then, of course, he can't help himself, and he right. goes right. off and starts being creative. So maybe maybe there's a case, a case of that. But it seems to me it's very much written from a philological point of view, mm-hmm. the way he thought, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I haven't seen any evidence of anything like, you know, Alf Winner heard this name or, you know, Rumiel said that or anything like that. Um, again, of what we have, basically, and what we have is what Christopher Tolkien's published and the addenda. Right. So. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Jana uh, is asking, you know, how, how sort of seriously we are supposed to take Tolkien's 
um, talk of, you know, discovering words, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Yana's pointing out how there, there are even at times where, where it seems almost Christopher himself seems to, you know, he's respectful, but he seems almost kind of not, not exactly joking about it, but, you know, uh, sort of somewhat lighthearted about it. Um, what um, what do you think about that? How do you understand his 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 talk of discovery when he when he's coming up with words? It's interesting. I, I, as I was rereading the introduction, it is funny how many times you, you get from Christopher that kind of oh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> right. I, it, me. It, it seems take, to me just to, to comment on that for a second, quick. Just comment on that for a second. My my sense yeah. there, how I read Christopher's. In, in that moment is Christopher not being like not not being embarrassed of his dad like yeah so here goes dad again right you know like, but rather being kind of shy about it you know like he like he mm. he says it Christopher seems to me scrupulously honest uh, at times you know in his editorial work in his you know like he he, he says even though he doesn't want to say them <laughs> or he brings things out even though he doesn't want to bring them out but then he's like kind of kind of nervous about it. And it, I, I get the vague impression that he had great respect for that and treated it very seriously, but kind of was shy about talking about it and, and just kind of put it out there and left it. But anyway, sorry, but I interrupted you. No, I, I agree. And it's funny, if you read that first paragraph when he talks about, look, you know, the literature itself is hard to untangle, you know, uh, but when it comes to the language stuff, you know, it doesn't, and there's no comparison in terms of entangling it and everything. I think, I mean, I, I don't want to talk for Christopher Tolkien, but I think he had a, a lot of respect for what his, what his father did. Um, but for me, I, what I understand is that Tolkien took it very seriously. It was the cornerstone of his, of his, of his creative thought, I mean, language. And so that's why I think it's important that you do take it seriously. And if you are going to you know, live in this world and analyze these languages uh, seriously, you have to, you have to take, you have to take it through. You have to think like Tolkien in a way, I think. Um, and so I go back to that line, you know, that the only way a word would exist for him is if he did this process, right. then he would know it. I think that there's, when I, that just jumped out at me when I was rereading this stuff again. You know, yeah. it's like, I mean, what, you know, the Galadriel there, there were three, Corey, you know that line so well. About, I dreamed of trees and trees there were. You know, right, I mean, right. it's it's that type of thing. And I think the act of creation for Tolkien when it came to language was this process. Because for him, as he said in a letter, you know, about other name inventors such as Jonathan Swift and, and Lord Dunsany, there wasn't this sense of coherence and consistency. And it was through the coherence and consistency that an illusion of historicity would be created. Right. And that was all that Tolkien was about, was that idea of depth and you know history and all that and that's why we can we can explore these languages in such depth because Tolkien spent the time you know doing that yeah yeah i mean the the thinking of the you know just trying to grapple with that discovery concept a little bit more and thinking about um especially stuff that we see in in the lost road right i mean i think the two things it seems to me that there are two processes going on if you want to kind of isolate them, but I think they're not isolated for Tolkien, but but if we want to kind of isolate them, on the one hand, there's the sort of rigorously scientific mechanism, right? You know, from a philological standpoint, um, by going back and constructing them from the roots so that it really works. There is a sense in which Tolkien, 
uh, could say and probably felt, um, this is not a made up word. This is a real word. Right. Because like, it's, yeah. it's a real word with a real history and it's based on it's I didn't just make I just didn't just slap together a bunch of phonemes and and declare that it meant something. Right. This is this is, you know, it's like why would on what grounds could you look at this word and say that's a fake word? He'd say, I didn't make it up. I derived it. Right. It's it's real. Yeah. I mean, it's as real as any other word, apart from the fact that he made up the roots. It's, it's re- but then there. But then that's the other element is like where the roots come from. Right. And I think back to um, the two things. One, the, the, the quote you were giving where he was talking about the, the fitness of sounds. Right. And then mm. also thinking about um, uh, Albuin in The Lost Road. Right. And his language of like words coming through to him and there right. you see, you you hear that much more mystical note right like there's this these words like they live somewhere and they're coming from somewhere to him right to Albuin in the story and again as i was saying we talked about that story although that story is is like you can't avoid autobiography you know when 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 reading the lost road nor can we make the simple uh, uh you know the simple leap to say Albuin's experience is a you know a straightforward and and uh, uh you know honest and literal depiction of Tolkien's own personal experience we we can't we can't make that leap uh but but again the fact that he put that kind of mystic kind of mystic is the best word I can think of to come from it. You know, that there's this, that it's out there. It has this existence outside mm. of him. He's not, he's, you know, in that sense, Albuin is not, is certainly not making up a language. He's, he's discovering it. It's being transmitted to him from somewhere by mm. somebody. Right. Um, and even the, the, what, you know, what Tolkien says about the fitness of words seems to me kind of connected to that, right. When he's making up roots, so, so you can say, all right, fine. He doesn't make up words. He derives words and puts them together so they're real words. But it's still real within a fake system that he made up, right? He still made up that system. Yeah. But I think that, uh, you know, he could say, no, 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 no. The system's not act just made up, right? It's, again, even there, he's not like he's just slapping phonemes together. Again, it's, it's, yeah. it's the, you know, the fitness of that phrase, that there's something in that phrase which points to reality there's there is in a sense in that way from a from a phonetic standpoint a mythic quality to those roots right um yeah and yeah i always think of the word rootness you know it's like these every word in tolkien's inventor have a rootness they have that there's a depth to them just like his stories have a depth and yeah i agree and i also think you know why would why did he pick more for example Right. to signify words having to do with darkness. Well, you can think of primary languages where more has a similar kind of feel and everything. So Tolkien said in one of the letters that, you know, he did recall certain sound, sound structures and things like that that he found pleasing or thought was interesting, but that it did not have any linguistic reality until it was placed in my mythology, right. which I think is an interesting one. So yeah. one of the earliest phases of kind of Tolkien's uh, kind of... Uh, um, reception of Tolkien's languages when the books first came out was a group of people that are called decoders who went through and tried to say okay so Sauron you know must come from the Saxon Sour meaning this and everything because that's where Tolkien would have heard it from you know right and Tolkien goes writes several letters yeah one to a Mr. Rank never sent uh, where he goes through and debunks that idea yeah but I think there was I think there was something he did remember you know, certain sounds he heard and things like that. And I think that's, but I also think it was very scientific, but at the same time, that's where the art of it came from, the elvish right. craft, as he called yes. it. Yes, yes. You know, 
mix kind of combine those two things together. Yeah, and that's where it would seem to me that the really um, thinking about that coming together is where the discovery comes in, right? That I, I mean, that it seems I see no reason not to take him perfectly seriously and quite literally when he talked about discovering things. He wasn't um, mm. the process for him wasn't about making stuff up. It was about um, finding the right word and and working out the relationships of these words in ways that would be right again right both from a scientific standpoint and right also you know from the philological scientific standpoint and right also from that more sort of mystical um you know it is it is the right sound for that expression uh kind of sense mm. um and both of those seem seem to me to drive his revisions right what? yeah and I also think the reason we see this happening now is the kind of the confidence that that was building in his language invention. I mean, he had spent the teens and the twenties kind of developing Quanya Noldoran, and now in the thirties. And I and I think that secret vice talk was a big motivator in a way. He kind of he went out there. He shared some of his language invention with a group of people. He got a good response. You know, there was a nice discussion afterwards. Apparently, that's what the minutes say. And then he says, well, let me, let me play around with this some more and start expanding this. So he's becoming more confident, I think, as a language inventor to, to experiment and try, you know, different things. Right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would love, to, I would love to be in a room. One of my, if I, if I had like that, you know, that magic way I could be in the room with Tolkien. I'd love to be in the room with him when he was taking a base route and kind of, as I say, riffing on it and just see right. what his thought process. Right. You know? Right. I mean, in the recent, um, on the BBC, they did uh, some excerpts from, from interviews he gave, and we actually heard him declining, you know, a, a Quenya noun, you know, right. and, and that was just amazing. And I just love to see him thinking, okay, I've got the space route. Now I'm going to develop, how, and just watch him doing it. It must have been amazing. Yeah, probably very late at night too, with lots of pipe smoke and stuff. <laughs> probably, like that. certainly lots of pipe <laughs> pipe smoke. You'd have to lots think. of pipe. Um, uh, Josiah had a, a sort of a follow up question, thinking about the you know deriving the words from the roots and stuff. He says, "Doesn't the process work backwards as well as forwards, though? Aren't there examples of Tolkien tweaking the roots themselves in order to end up with the final form that he wanted?" It was his game. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure he did. It, you know, it, it, I'm sure he did. You know, as, I think as long, I mean, as he says in Secret Vice, as long as you, as you stick to the rules and everything, but I'm sure he probably then, oh, wait a minute, that base root isn't going to really work, so I'll, I'll add another consonant to it or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the, that's like the magic, right? Whereas with, with philology, we can only go like backwards, right, to try to trace back and uncover the thing. He can, he can, he can do it both ways, <laughs> right? And I would think that would be, that would be the great fun, right, the, you know, of, of, that, yeah. of that whole thing. Yeah, cool. He was creating the holy grail that everyone was looking for in philology, basically, I would right, think of. Exactly. He was actually he was reverse engineering to create the holy grail, basically. <laughs> right. so. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I, quick question about the thinking about the relationship between his linguistic, the you know, the his linguistic imagination, and his uh, you know his 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 mythic and and storial imagination. Um, it seems to me interesting, noteworthy. I mean, I've been I've, I've been talking at the end, you know, as as I've been thinking through the Quintus Silmarillion here in the Lost Road, I've been looking at. 
you know, what's coming next is the Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings seems to be like the collision point, right? Where we had like the, the Hobbit and the Hobbit strand and his impulse, uh, well, you know, his sort of shove, right? To write a sequel to the Hobbit. And then you've got the Silmarillion stuff kind of coming in and they, the two of them have been in parallel tracks and he's been, you know, they've not, they've not, but now, now they really come together and the Lord of the Rings is really kind of the marriage of those two different parts of his mind, really kind of for the first time. Um, but when he does that, as you were pointing out, he stops doing, I mean, he's using the etymologies to make names. Mm. Um, but it seems that the period of the composition of the Lord of the Rings, based on what you were saying before, is a, a period of comparative inactivity in his development of the languages. Would you was that? Would you say that? No, uh, no? I would actually disagree with that a bit. Uh, we've just gotten in Parma Elder Lombaran twenty two. Okay. A whole series of documents that Tolkien was working on in nineteen forty forty one, and I'm talking historical. Um, structures of Quenya verbs, okay. uh, a system of this thing called this really fascinating six documents called Elfwina's spelling, in which he charts out how Elfwina yeah. would have transcribed words he heard in Elvish. Nice. And he comes up with a whole phonetic rules for <laughs> nice. this. Nice. I just did. A, um, <laughs> if any, there's a good. I, I, That's fantastic. I phonetic rules for how to fun. how to take dictation from Elvish languages in Anglo-Saxon. That that that's exactly. awesome. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And whether you're, whether you're doing Quenya or Noldoran, and then how's that going <laughs> yeah, to Elvish? Of course, because you can't I use can the same transcription system. Obviously. <laughs> that's great. No. That's great. So yes, while he's working on Lord of the Rings, yeah, and teaching and doing all the other. He's also doing a lot of language work, actually. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, there's quite a bit. And, and another writing system uh, he works on as well. Good. So Good. He Good. never well, ended then, with it. Excellent. No, because I was, I was surprised. I, I, I thought that you had said earlier before that it was that he was not as active then, which was which is surprising to me. So I, that's why I'm saying good. I, oh, no. That, I, that makes, that, that makes much more sense to me. I think with the etymologies, what Christopher says in the introduction is that there's evidence that he was using the etymologies in the early phases of the Lord of the Rings. Right. Because we get words that appear in the early phases of Lord of the Rings, but then somewhere in the middle he stopped using the etymologies. So maybe that's when he started compiling this other thing, which later would become these Eldarin roots that got published later after Lord of the Rings. Right. But I don't, I, I, I'm convinced Tolkien never stopped working on the languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, what does he also create in 19, you know, in 1945? He creates Adonaic, you know, as part of the Notion Club papers. Yeah. You know, he's still working on it. So no, he, I, I think he, that was always a part of what of his work. I don't know where he found the time to do it, but he did. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, and it and it's, it's he didn't watch TV. He just he he made up languages instead. Yeah. You know, that, that's pretty much it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the um, it, it's 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 really in, here here here's what I'm thinking. Like why I'm interested in this question right now is thinking about the that the. the the sort of uh, a symbiotic relationship, right, between his his linguistic creation and his um, uh, and his story writing, right? Um, we were looking, you know, in the Hlamas and the Quintus Elmerillion at how those two things were really, you know, together, and how we can see in the Hlamas, you know, some of those uh, examples of how the stories that he's coming up with are really derived, you know, seem to be derived directly from this linguistic impulse. Um, in the Lord of the Rings. 
the two worlds are coming together, but the specific mm. work that he's doing is no longer, it's not like a one-to-one, right? Working on the languages and their evolution and refining that at the same time that you're working on and developing and refining the Silmarillion stories is one thing, right? Because really that's the same story told in two different ways or like sort of from two different angles. With the Lord of the Rings story, it's not the same story, right? You know, that's, that's, that's sort of a different thing. But it's interesting to see then if that is, he, he is continuing to do that. It seems like on one level, Right. From a, I don't know, a content standpoint. Right. It's like a side project now. Right. You know, what does the development mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, you know, changing how he's thinking about, you know, Quenya verbs and stuff. How does that influence his, um, uh, you know, that wouldn't seem to have any direct, you know, much anyway, direct influence on the progression of the Lord of the Rings story. Right. And yet. And yet it's, you know, it's that, that, that hope that, that, that process is still going on. And I can't imagine that it's not, um, you know, just kind of wrapped up with his own, his whole creative project, but the relationship between those two things seems to me that like it gets a little bit more complicated maybe than when he's working on the Lord of the Rings. Well, and interestingly, when, when we do Return of the Shadow, not that I'm trying to influence that, but I'm, I'm hoping we do that out there. Everyone vote, vote for it. Um, what, one of the uh, interesting things to look at is the original encounter with um, Gildor and Glorion, you know, when, when we hear yes. that first phrase of Elvish. And if you look at the earliest version of that draft, there is no Elvish in it. And mm-hmm. He decides to put the 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 greeting Ellen Celia Omentolivio, a form of that, although it's not that form yet, into the second draft. And you see him playing around with the form Sila, which means shine, basically, which has some relation to what he's doing with the Quenya verbs at the time. Right. So he starts to again. I, I see the Lord of the Rings as very much Tolkien, you trying to get his mythology out in a different kind of in a different channel, basically. Okay. Right. And, and I think the same thing is true with the charts with names, but then he gets more confident and he starts to put in a little Elvish, and then we get, you know, Elbereth, and we get Namadier, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think you're right. I think they, they are pretty much parallel tracks, but they do come together at times. And I right. think um, certainly by the time we get to the appendices, when he's working on the appendices for publication, he rethinks a major part of, his, of Elvish languages, and that is he creates Sindarin, which right. replaces Noldoran. Right. And that causes a massive upheaval in the way that the structure of the languages are created and everything. So, right. so yeah, I think he's, um, it comes back, definitely. Right, right, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, Yana has a great, uh, uh, another great question. He says, did the writing and publishing of is the Yana Lord... The one that's up, is Yana the one that's up all night? I really yes. respect her. Yes, he is. And he's, he's... Yana, I really respect her. I used to be able to do that in Mythgard classes, <laughs> but I can't anymore. Yes, he's. Uh, um, I'm sure very happy to be here at a civilized hour uh, today. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Yana says, did the writing and publishing of the Lord of the Rings lock down the languages in any way? Since there was now an, you know, an example of it out there in the world, did he feel bound by this? Um, what do we see in that in the post Lord of the Rings work? Oh no, we see lots more work on the languages. There is there is a later phase. Yeah in the 50s, um, and again, he, uh, he's playing around with the languages basically to almost the day he dies. I mean, we have, we have documents in the last volume of Tree Middle 
where he's playing around with the language as late as 1973. And a big phase comes in the 19th He translates five Catholic prayers into Quenya and Sindarin, uh, which have been published in the Vineyard Tangwars. And you see there again another progression and, and, you know, again, shifting of the language. You know, Tolkien had no qualms about deciding, getting up one morning and at breakfast deciding, I'm going to change the past tense of the Quenya verb to this or something like that. I mean, that's where this idea of shifting comes from. And it's, this, it's very tricky to kind of study the languages as one whole thing. They're different conceptual phases. Um, but no, he continues. He definitely continues. And then towards the end of his life, he starts, as he does with a lot of the mythology, which again, I hope we, I hope we get to explore in later Mythgard Academy classes, um, <laughs> he looks back on his earlier mythology and starts to change it. You know, right. so we get the whole flat earth versus round earth, and yeah. I mean, lots of stuff goes on. Yeah. Myths transformed. I mean, right, yeah. right, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. But of course, you see, I, I mean, I... I I would have to guess, right, that um, rather than feeling constricted like he's got to stick with the published work, what he would do is continue to change the language and then just come up with a story for why these strange or provincial or archaic forms of the Elvish ended up getting put into the Red Book, right? Linguistic retconning. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which would be which would which would then be a great story in in and of itself. So so the real mystery is how did Sam Gamge or Frodo? Why did Frodo, who is quite good at languages, right? Why would he have put this form of the Quenya verb when clearly that was you know that was you know so where would he have heard that version that 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 you know that, yeah so yeah yeah. Or, or not even not even Frodo, but the copier of the Red right, Book of course, yes, exactly right. Yes. I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing the Beowulf class right now, and let me tell you the number of you know words that are, you know that are cruxes that we're not quite sure what the scribe originally wrote. Well, Tolkien lived with this all his all all his life, so yeah, you know they misheard that word and they copied it as this. You know that's a great way to say, well, that's what the form really was. Right. So, right. No, absolutely. I yeah. Definitely would have done that. Yeah. yeah. It's it's all it's all part of the game. Um, yeah, mm, great, great. Um, uh, uh, Mick Neal was just wondering um, if you could explain a little bit about the connection between comparative philology and modern linguistics. Like, what what is the? I know a lot of people don't really understand the. I mean, people are kind of familiar with the idea of linguistics. Like, that's still a thing in most universities and everything. Um, and just kind of trying to understand what exactly is the difference between linguistics and philology. Hmm. Um. Well, I think for me, the way I the way I think about it is philology is really the marriage of what Tolkien called lit and lang, basically, right. which he he fought as Tom Shippey says the long defeat uh, yes. all his life to get in, into schools. And this is the type the thing that you just don't you just don't study the language, but you study the literature that the language accommodates, basically. And of course, historical or comparative philology came about in the 18th, 19th century when people started comparing languages. And so you have people like the Brothers Grimm, right. or Jakob Grimm, really, um, William James, etc., who started looking to see what were the commonalities between different languages and how, you know, taking a bunch of different languages and saying, oh, that one relates to that one. So Fater and Pitar, and etc., etc. Right. And, of course, we have some of the, you know, rules like Grimm's rule and things like that where... Um, you can actually posit by looking at all those different languages some key shifts that ha- that happened right. to kind of show how they're combined together and everything. And this, of course, became a very important part of this idea of asterisks 
uh, philology, this idea of you can actually, by knowing all of that, by knowing all those rules, right. you can then go back and posit, well, this is what the base root must, this is what the original form had to have been. Right. Because right. if it was this, it would have resulted in that sound shift, etc., etc. There's a great um, uh, course at Mythgard, actually, if anyone wants to take a brilliant course in Mythgard, um, ca called Philology Through Tolkien, taught by the master yeah. the master of philology and of Tolkien, Tom Shippey. Yes. And I recommend, uh, I know that's probably part of the, one of the certificate programs, the course. It is, strength. yeah. yeah that's a brilliant class, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mick was asking, is comparative philology still an academic discipline? It is, it is at Signum. It, it totally is. It's, you can it see. is absolutely yeah. one of the few places it is. <laughs> that's right, yeah. No, I mean, if you it, want to take a really... Yeah. If you want to take a real down-home, true traditional philology course, take it at Mythgard take because exactly. Tom Shippey is teaching it. Yeah. Nelson Goring, you've got true philologists teaching it. Yeah. I learned very much from it. Yeah, Brilliant no, course. it's been really great, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, that's been it's been something we've been really we've been really excited to do because we know I know that you know comparative philology is sort of dying as an academic discipline and has been for some time. I mean, that's the, the long defeat you were mentioning that Tolkien was fighting uh, back in his day. Um, and uh, but, you know, Tolkien, of course, to those of us who, you know, who love and respect him as much as we do, he's a very eloquent spokesman for that for that field of study. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's been uh, it's been really fun to kind of open that up a little bit uh, more. But good. Well, I, I we should. Um, Right, any other last thoughts that you have? I don't want to. I don't want to keep you forever. I know it's getting late over there. Uh, it's only ten thirty, Corey. It's, it's for us. For Yana, Yana's, Yana's, yeah, exactly. Yana's alarm wouldn't even be going off yet. I mean, it's uh, Not so. Two a.m. Two a.m. in the morning with you with history of the Hobbit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, no, I'm happy to answer any more questions. Or I, I'm just curious to know what people thought as they dug into the etymologies. Did they find? Anything interesting? Any observations? Yeah, and no, see, I, I had uh, cited uh, Nancy's that she found before. Um, oh yeah, I, I just I'm looking back through through comments from earlier on. Kate Neville, I think when you were looking doing the uh, the, uh, the 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 maha uh, root and looking at looking at swords, mm. and she was noticing where more McGill came from, the uh, McGill part of the of that. You know, she was she was. She had a little aha moment seeing where the name came from there. Um, yep, the yeah. black sword. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Nancy Fosberg was uh, uh, was was sort of noticing or asking the uh, um, the 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 Boron Voro stuff. Um, that presumably mm. is where Veronway's name came from. Yes. Yeah. Yes, early on in the Quenya lexicon, we have Veronway meaning steadfast, and originally he was Ariandel's wife, right. and then he became his companion. Right. Yeah. Right. But that comes from that that Vru. Yep. Yeah, there are two interesting words that you can trace through Tolkien's language invention. One is Vru, and the other one is Lint, which starts off in in uh, Nevbosh actually, not even Nafrin, and becomes words. You know it gets into the Elvish language and you have Tinway Linto and things like that. It means swift right. or running. And even in the 1960s, is a poem that mentions the lintips, which might have a base to that. So Tolkien had these little, he says it in Secret Vice, or just these, these, these words that always had a, something for him and he would use them in his language invention. Right, right. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's great. Um, uh, quick, actually, quick question from that. Um, what is that? Someone was asking me this the other day, and I didn't know how to answer it. What's the significance of the way ending that's so common in in the Elvish names? The W E ending. Mon way. Um, yeah, it means well, mon way. It's weg, which actually in weg. gnomish, all the way back, means man. Okay. Which is interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so but you right, see it like, a lot, Finweg, Finweg, yeah, Elweg, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so so and you it, love that E with the I. Yes, so that 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 originally came it, from Weg, which just mean which just meant man. So it was. Yeah, so. but if you look in the etymologies, I think. Yeah, if you look at Weg, okay, on page three ninety eight, it means vigor, manhood, etc. And then you have Mon, Finn, El, Finn. Yeah, so he, he explains it in the etymologies. Okay. But, but it goes back even further to the to Gnomish. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I remembered the Weg ending in the earlier versions of the names. Um, Finweg, in particular, was always one that kind of stuck yes. in my head. Yeah. Um, so Marie asks... Mon right. changes later, yeah. Mon right, right. Um, Marie says it so then it, it's like the it's like the the W E N and I E L endings on female names then. Yeah, Galadriel, etc. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Morwen, as you and said, like, you know. Yeah. 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 Cool. At this conceptual period of Tolkien's language invention, that's what that meant. Right. 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 <laughs> it's always, it's always, so, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure. It's it, always a disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. You know, when somebody says, hey, so uh, what does this Elvish word mean? And you're like, well, there are about 10 answers to that question, <laughs> depending on what uh, year in the 20th century we're talking about. Yeah. Like Gilgalud's father. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. Uh, w- one last question. Mick has uh, just uh, was was wondering. Does uh, did did Tolkien know any Hebrew? He was asking. Um, he mentioned. Well, of course, Kazdul Dwarvish right. is based on the Semitic structure of you know the consonants with right. the vowels. Yes. Um, and in the language papers, there are a couple of places where he does mention Hebrew. I, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was he. Well, I'm sure he must have known because he also worked on some biblical stuff as well. Right. I don't know he, how he, deeply he knew it, but he he worked on the I'm Jonah. Sure. Was 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 he doing the Jonah it, straight from uh, the Hebrew? No, I think that might have been a translation. Right. So Can't he, remember. I, I'm not sure on that one. Don't don't quote me on that yeah. one. But I know there are a couple of places where he does talk about Hebrew in relation to the dwarves and. Um, Semitic and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Just like I'm sure he knew elements of Sanskrit as well. Right. You know, right. he was a philologist. Right. Would have known. You know. Yeah. 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 Cool. A, a dwarvish kazdul is definitely based on that system that we see in Hebrew. Right. Of the words being formed with two vowel. I'm sorry, two consonants and a vowel, and then the vowel shifts depending on the uh, the meaning. Yeah. Biblical Hebrew is not. I, that's on my list somewhere. For several years or more. <laughs> yes, yes. Once I get finished under my belt. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and Yana was 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 asking. He he did speak. He did speak Dutch, right? I'm sure he spoke Dutch, right? That's yeah. That's yes, I mean, in fact he gave. Uh, he was. A... Yeah. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, he just gave. He was in Rotterdam, and he gave that speech and everything. So I'm sure. Um, and he and he actually wrote to the Dutch publishers of the Lorenz. I remember. Well, yes. I think I remember seeing some Dutch in there. So and I and I remember clearly the scathing review of the Dutch translation of The Hobbit that he gave yes. and all the complaints that he was making, uh, which clearly somebody who did not know Dutch fairly well would, would have, uh, they would have gone over his head if he had, if he didn't know it well enough to uh, recognize what they were doing. It, what wasn't, it, in particular it was the names, wasn't it? He was really mad that they, they were screwing yeah. with the names uh, in The Hobbit. Um, well, that's when he, is that when he wrote the guide to translating the names? I yes. think somewhere yes. he actually wrote a guide and he said, "These are you know you do not translate these names." And it's in it's in um, Christina and Wayne's fiftieth uh, anniversary Lord of the Rings. I think that in the back there's a yeah they, they published that or something. Yeah yeah um, yeah. No, but he was, he was not happy about the way names are being translated. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. His names that he worked so hard on with coherence and yes. consistency. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then here they're just, <laughs> oh, you put the, it's like the Beowulf scribes all over again, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Except this time he could reach out and do something about it for, calling, for crying about out it. loud, right? Yeah. Instead of, you know, it's, it was too late to reach out and smack the Beowulf scribes on the back of the head. Pay attention. That's not the word, right? <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, uh, but by golly, he could do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Marie Prosser says his uh, guide to translation was aimed at a German translation that hadn't uh, happened yet. But yeah, it was the as uh, as Yana pointed out, the Dutch translation was the first uh, translation of The Hobbit that was published, and so yeah, that's what kind of primed the pump that sort of showed him that this was going to be a problem, and uh, and uh, sort of revealed to him how much he was going to hate that. So so yeah, um, yeah, cool. I think that was the one. I, was it that one or another one where they they that's when they compared. The Lord of the Rings to Wagner's Ring, and he he made that quote: "The rings are, and that's where the resemblance yes, ends." Yeah, that's the. I right. think that was one of them. Exactly. I think that might have been the. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. All right, very good. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, this uh, this. Well, thank you. This then brings to an end our our, uh, our our discussion of the Lost Road. Uh, remember our next. Uh, our next book that we're going to be talking about together is Ursula Le Guin's Dispossessed, which I know, Andy, you were talking about a, notes of linguistic interest in there, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Pravik. Pravik is yes. an amazing invented language. And actually, I know someone who is going to write it, is, is working on writing an opera in it. <laughs> writing an so opera in Pravik? <laughs> in Pravik, yeah. I met them at this conference I went to in language invention uh, where I gave a paper. Wow. So when we get to the Dispossessed, to share some of that. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Because it's, I mean, as I recall, in the book, it's, it is within the book, uh, uh, constructed language, right? When they go, when they go yeah. to the moon, they, they construct a new language for themselves, right? So you have this, uh, the construction of the language as in parallel to and part of the process of constructing the new society that they go on, they go on to make. So, so yes. Yeah. So, well, uh, Le, Guin would, Le Guin did that in several of her books and, and always coming home, she created a whole language called Kesh. Right. For the Kesh uh, uh, for the Keshian people, and it it's it's quite intricate and detailed. So Le Guin was a language inventor, definitely. Yeah, yeah, 
Cool. So, uh, so, so anyway, so, so next, and that's coming up quite soon. So this coming Wednesday, uh, the, what, what week are we in the 21st? Yes. This coming Wednesday, the 21st, uh, is going to be our first class, um, for the, uh, for the dispossessed. So, so we're doing the first two chapters of the dispossessed. So, uh, uh, make sure to, to, to read and be ready for that. Also, as, uh, as Dr. Higgins mentioned before, um, the secret vice, of course, which you know we've been referring to uh, off and on in the wonderful new edition that was just released uh, by Dr. Higgins and, and Dr. Femi, um, they are going to do a special seminar. So I announced this a while back that we're do- we, we're, we're doing a we're doing a new thing now. We're doing another new thing um, where we're doing these periodic seminars where we'll have these like intensive mini classes uh, taught by distinguished guest lecturers, and uh, the first sort of series of seminars that I have, uh, that I really want to do is to bring in people talking about what I call Tolkien's new books, right? All these, all these Tolkien works that have been coming out and these new editions that have been coming out over the last 10 years or so. Um, so, and, and, uh, Dr. Higgins and Dr. Femi are going to be kicking off our, our first one of these. This is going to happen next month in October. So starting the, starting the second week of October, um, on Tuesday afternoons, afternoons Eastern time, um, they're gonna they're gonna do uh, three sessions. So so for three weeks in a row, they'll they'll do sessions going over the secret vice, talking about. Uh, I mean, you, you want to talk a little bit about what you what what you guys are gonna cover in the seminar? Yeah, I mean, what, um, Dimitri and I are gonna do one lecture each. I'm gonna talk about the find that I mean the find that really knocked me off my chair when I started when I was doing research for this, um, which is this language called Funwegian that Tolkien invented um early on and was one of the languages he talked about when he gave the Secret Vice talk on twenty ninth November nineteen thirty one. this is an, a new language that we have elements of that no one's ever seen before until we published this, which is great. And then Demetra is going to talk about the her her real find in developing this, which is the essay on phonetic symbolism, which is a little booklet Tolkien wrote around this whole idea around sound symbolism. Yes. And, you know what do I mean by that and all that? It's a very fa- fascinating uh, pamphlet that's in the Secret Vice. And then we'll do a third session, which will be Q and A, which will allow students to ask us questions about what they've seen in the Secret Vice yeah. and everything, and we'll have a nice discussion. So three good sessions. Yes, excellent, excellent. So that's going to be in October, and that is going to be part of the Signum University fundraiser, which kicks off a week from yesterday on 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 Bilbo and Frodo's birthday on the twenty second. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing uh, so. Yeah, so we'll have uh, um, and we've already uh, we've already received some uh, some generous donations in connection with the with the seminar series, which we're really excited about. So I will be talking more about that stuff too. So we're we're uh, we're getting ready for the uh, for the Signum University fundraiser and and uh, the this uh, seminar on secret vice is one of the things that I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, as part of our part of our overall fundraiser activities there so well thanks again very much Andy for uh, being with us today uh, this has been uh, this has been fantastic thank I, I thank you for kind of opening up the etymologies for us and I hope that people uh, now feel equipped to have lots of fun digging around on their own and making discoveries there. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Corey, and thanks to everyone. It's, it's been a, it's been an amazing cl- again another amazing class, and and I and I look forward to 
the rest of them after the dispossessed. <laughs> Not that I'm trying to. That's the way you can influence. I, I, know I, I, I feel bad influencing, but you know. It's... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody. I will see you guys on Wednesday, if not before. So thanks everybody. Bye now. Night.